Sorry, I'm squeaking and squawking maybe a little bit this morning. Here in Genesis 29, we find uh, Jacob taking his parents' instructions and going to the land of his fathers to uh, find a wife. So let's pick, up, pick this up and read the first 14 verses to begin with this morning. So Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. And he looked and saw a wall, a well in the field, and behold, there were three flocks of sheep lying by it. For out of that well they watered the flocks, a large stone was on the well's mouth. Now all the flocks would be gathered there, and they would roll the stone from the well's mouth, water the sheep, and put the stone back in its place on the well's mouth. And Jacob said to them, My brethren, where are you from? And they said, We are from Haran. And he said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said, We know him. So he said to them, Is he well? And they said, He is well. And look, his daughter Rachel coming with the sheep. Then he said, Look, it is still high day. It is not time for the cattle to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go and feed them. But they said, We cannot until all the flocks are gathered together. And they have rolled the stone from the well's mouth. Then we water the sheep. Now while he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. And it came to pass when Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, that Jacob went near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and lifted up his voice and wept. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's relative and that he was Rebekah's son. So she ran out and told her father. Then it Then it came to pass, when Laban heard the report about Jacob, his sister's son, that he ran to meet him, embraced him, and kissed him, and brought him to his house. So he told Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, Surely you are bone, my bone, and my flesh. And he stayed with him for a month. So we see here Jacob looking for Uncle Laban, for for his family from Haran to find a wife from what would be considered what we'd consider today a godly family to ensure that Jacob would not be corrupted and compromised by marrying an ungodly woman of Canaan land so he travels to far away to find the wife that God would lead him to and we find here then in these verses that Jacob meets Rachel he sees her coming as a shepherdess he's from the context of the story you as you read on, you think that he may have been standing there with his mouth open as he saw this beautiful gal coming with the sheep. And you might think he's a bit forward and they haven't had a first date. He walks up to her and gives her a big kiss and, and, and cries on his neck. I don't know if that's because she wasn't a good kisser or whatever the case may be. But in reality, what we see here is that this is a standard greeting, isn't it? It's a, it's a way one greeted one's relatives. And the tears of joy that he shed may have been tears of reunion. Reunion of family and maybe a realization that he's being led by God. And then we find here in this, in this passage that Jacob then meets and stays with Uncle Laban, but for a whole month. You know, why is he hanging out for a month? There might have been something that was keeping him here, don't you think? He was hanging out for that month. And then as we go on, we find here the second aspect of the story. We could call it Act 2, as you prefer, his uh, pursuit of Rachel and his uh, deceitful uncle, so to speak. So we're going to go on reading, pick it up in verse 15. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my relative, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the elder was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. 
Leah's eyes were delicate, but Rachel was beautiful of form and appearance. Now Jacob loved Rachel, so he said, I will serve you seven years for Rachel, your younger daughter. And Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than I should give her to another man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed only a few days to him because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife, for my days are fulfilled, that I may go into her. And Laban gathered together all the men of the place and made a feast. Now it came to pass in the evening that he took Leah, his daughter, and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. And Laban gave his maid Zilpah to his daughter Leah as a maid. So it came to pass in the morning that, behold, it was Leah. And he said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Was it not for Rachel that I served you? Why then have you deceived me? And Laban said, It must not be done so in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Fulfill her week, and we will give you this one also for the service which you will serve with me still another seven years. Then Jacob did so and fulfilled her week, so he gave him his daughter Rachel as wife also. And Laban gave him his maid, Bilhah, to his daughter Rachel as maid. Then Jacob was also went into Rachel. He loved Rachel more than Leah, and he served with Laban still another seven years. So we find here in this chapter is Jacob the deceiver was deceived by Uncle Laban. Apparent Laban, excuse me. Apparently, it was in the genes. One commentary stated this this way. I thought this was good. The man who deceived his father was deceived by his father-in-law, and the man who passed himself off as the firstborn son now receives Laban's firstborn daughter to be his wife. It is an inescapable law of life that we eventually reap what we sow, Galatians 6, 7, and 8. God in his grace forgives our sins when we confess them, 1 John 1, 9, but God in his government allows us to suffer the painful consequences of those sins. And so he's saying maybe what goes around comes around. You reap what you sow. And here we find the deception that existed here between uh, Laban and Jacob. And what's interesting here is Leah seems to have been a willing participant, doesn't she? Instead of refusing her father's plan because of the insanity of it, she entered into the deception in order to get something that she wanted. She, you know, she wanted to be married and have children with no view of future consequence. And as we go on, we'll see the misery that existed in that home and what did she expect? And we must understand in our lives that it's often our fleshly desires, our wanters that blind us to things, don't we? Sometimes God gives us a view of the consequence of what could happen when we make certain decisions and we kind of push them to the back because we want something so bad and we're blinded to that potential consequence. We, and we don't see the future. And often we don't even consider the consequence in that desire. But that's one of the joys of the Christian because we know a God who sees the future. God sees the end for the beginning. He knows the future. He knows the consequence, and he warns us. He instructs us in the way we should go. He warns us of making the wrong and bad decisions. And if we trust and obey his instructions and warnings, we don't need to fear the future consequence. We can rest assured that, that life will be stable and safe when we are willing to put our trust in him and obey him implicitly. And instead, then, we can anticipate rest and peace in the, in the good consequences from the decisions made as we, as we follow the guidance of our Heavenly Father. It comes down to simply trusting the Lord. Well, let's go on to the third aspect, Act 3, if you prefer to, prefer to call this, because we see this, this, what started out as deception, as a work of the flesh, continues into the home in the uh, conflict that existed then in the home. 
Let's pick it up with verse 31 and read a ways here. It says, when the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. So Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, the Lord has surely looked on my affliction. Now therefore my husband will love me. Then she conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am unloved. He has therefore given me this son also, and she called his name Simeon. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Now this time a husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. <coughs> and she conceived again and bore a son and said, Now, now I will praise the Lord. Excuse me, we're going to go on here. Okay, no wonder. It's in the middle of the verse. No wonder I was lost. <laughs> Therefore she called his name Judah, then she stopped bearing. Now when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, Rachel envied her sister and said to Jacob, Give me children or else I die. And Jacob's anger was aroused against Rachel, and he said, Am I in the place of God <coughs> who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? So she said, This is my maid Bilhah. Go into her, and she will bear a child on my knees, that I may have children by her. Then she gave him Bilhah, her maid, as wife, and Jacob went into her. <coughs> I hit the pause button. I'm sorry. And Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged my case, and he has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore she <coughs> called his name Dan. And Rachel's maid Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. And Rachel said, With great wrestlings I have wrestled with my sister, and indeed I have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had stopped bearing, she took Zilpah, her maid, and gave her to Jacob, his wife. And Leah's maid, Zilpah, <coughs> bore Jacob a son. And Leah said, A troop comes, so she called his name Gad. And Leah's maid, Zilpah, bore Jacob a second son. And Leah said, I am happy, for the daughters will call me blessed. So she called his name Asher. Now Reuben went in the days of wheat harvest and found, a man, found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. When Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes, but she said to her, is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you also take away my son's mandrakes? And Rachel said, therefore he will lie with you tonight for your son's mandrakes. Then Jacob came out of the field in the evening. Leah went out to meet him and said, you must come into me, for I have surely hired you with my son's mandrakes. And he lay with her that night. And God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given to me my wages, because I have given my maid to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. And Leah conceived again and bore Jacob a sixth son. And Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband, husband will dwell with me. 
because I have bore him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Afterwards, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. And God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. And she conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. So she called his name Joseph and said, the Lord shall add to me another son. Thank you. Should have known with all those commercials that they did with radio that this would happen. She did add, God did add another son, Benjamin, to her, her life. But, you know, what we really see in this, I know there's a lot of stuff we could cover in this portion, but what I wanted to point out this morning is the, uh, is the actions of the flesh and the disaster, the calamity that comes when people are operating in the flesh. <coughs> it all started with the deceit of Laban putting his older daughter in an unvery, very unfavorable position. It involved Leah, her willingness to compromise in order to get married and have children. And it landed her in a very unhappy place. What a miserable home. What a miserable existence. She, she, she sought refuge in defining herself by the number of children that she would bear, rather than simply finding rest in God who had a plan for her life. And then on top of that, this all led to conflict in the home. As you read through this, maybe you noticed the envy, the jealousy, the lack of love, the anger, the blame, the competition. Later on, that would translate into the children as the 11 brothers hated and sold Joseph into slavery because of the toxic environment in his home. What a messy and dysfunctional household this was. And yet through it all, God was fulfilling and keeping his promises and his plan. And that's really the lesson, I think, behind this. This may be a lesson on how not to function as a family in, in many ways in this passage. But what we do see is God in his grace accomplishes his, his will in spite of ourselves. See, in our fairy tale version of life, we would, we would have thought that Jacob and Rachel would get married and live happily ever after. They would have their cheaper by the dozen boys in the midst of, we of wedded bliss. And it didn't work that way, did it? Because when you put two sinners in the home, there's conflict. And when you put three, there's even more. And then add a couple maids, there's even more. And, and unless you look to the Lord, there could be chaos in one's life. You see, in reality, in marriage, we recognize that marriage is in reality a ministry. And so often we take the world's perspective that, the world, that marriage is about everything it does for me instead of realizing that God brings two people together to minister to each other to tolerate each other, to have patience with each other, to lift each other up, to encourage each other, to forgive each other, not to go to war together. But, he, but when you operate in the flesh, this is what you get. But God, in spite of that, accomplished his will. Look at the children that were born. Born to Leah were, were six sons and a daughter. To Bilhah, Rachel's maid, were two more sons. To Zilpah, Leah's maid, two sons. And to Rachel, two sons which comes up to the 12 tribes of Israel. That's what God was driving towards. He was, he was fulfilling his promise to make of Jacob a great nation. And so God was working in spite of himself, which tells us that God's going to accomplish his will in spite of a dysfunctional family or a dysfunctional people, leaving no doubt that power and ability belongs to God. And that's the lesson here. You know, later in Re Revelation, towards the end of the tribulation, we see this stated, after these things I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation, glory, and honor, power belong to the Lord our God. 
That's the, that's the recognition God wants to bring people to, is the awesomeness of our God, a God who is a personal God, a God who is engaged in their lives, yet a God who is accomplishing his will in spite of the, of the calamity of men. I like the verses in Isaiah 46, 8 through 10, who says this, Remember this, God says, remember this, and show yourselves, men. In other words, stand up before me. Recall the mind, O you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do my good pleasure. And that's our God. And that's a God we can trust in. Because he is not limited by the limitations of men in accomplishing his will. He accomplishes his will in the midst of our calamities because he is God the Sovereign, God Almighty. But along the way, he includes us, doesn't he? <clears throat> and that's where grace comes in. Because God can take the weak sinner and use him to accomplish his will in spite of ourselves. Because God does use flawed people. We see it throughout biblical history. We see it in our lives. God uses flawed people who look to him, who turn to him. And God has chosen to both work among us in our lives and through us in accomplishing his will. He's included us in that venture. He first of all invites us to know him as Savior so that we can become his children and rightly related with our Creator. And then he invites us to enjoy him as God and Lord of our lives. He wants to be engaged and involved with us. He even then also wants to share his life with us as we, as we consider the abiding relationship in John 15. And when he is in us and we're in him and he wants to be our life and we are his vessels as we live our lives for his glory. Then he has also appointed us as his representatives to stand for his truth and to carry the message of his love and salvation to the needy around us. God has called us. He is working through us, but he's also working in spite of us. And God's going to accomplish his sovereign will whether or not we choose to enjoy these privileges that he's called us to, that he's included us in. It is a tremendous privilege. And I'm not sure why, why often God has to work so hard in our lives to convince us of the blessing it is to walk with him, to enjoy him, to serve him, when he is our creator. It's the place we were designed to be, the place we find the most rest, the most fulfillment, the most satisfaction, yet we so often reject it and choose rather to do our own thing, like sheep who go astray, sheep who are self-destructive, as John said earlier. And so God accomplishes will in spite of us, but wants to include us. And if we want to be part of that program, we need to acknowledge that. We need to acknowledge who God is and who we are. That's the lesson here. The lesson is, is what happens when we live life apart from the direction of God and all the calamity that exists and that, that happens because of it. And Laban may have thought he was getting the upper hand in, in deceiving Jacob, you know, an extra seven years of service, you know, for, for his daughter. And yet the calamity he created in the next generation was disastrous in many ways. And we, that's what we often don't see. We might think that we're getting away with it in our generation, but what about the successive generations to come? And so we need to acknowledge how much we need him. We sang that song earlier, and I'm glad we did. I need thee, I need thee, I need thee, we sang, and I hope we meant it, because let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 as we reaffirm this, this message that we see in Genesis, Genesis 29 in regards to how much we need him. And that's maybe the hardest thing for us to come to. Because as prideful people and as people who are independent and capable, 
We don't always want to think we need. But when it comes to living right before God, when it comes to making right decisions, decisions that bring stability and assurance for the future, we need him. And in 1 Corinthians 1, God is, is talking about the wisdom of man versus the wisdom of God. And he comes to this conclusion in verse 26. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. And that's the message. God has chosen the incapable. And if, you're, if we're honest with ourselves, we qualify. We fit these verses. Because before God, we are weak and incapable of, of li living life apart from the power of God. And that's a point we have to come to so that we don't glory in ourselves. That's why the first thing on the list of sins in Proverbs is a proud look. A look of arrogance that I don't need you. I've got this on my own. Because in reality, we do not. Verse 30 goes on to say, But of him, of Christ, you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us. He provides for us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and, and redemption, that it is, as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. You see, it's encouraging to know that we can serve in the power of God. And it's not dehumanizing or condescending to, to come to that point to admit that. It's honesty. It's honesty that we are weak as sinners and that we wander astray like sheep. That we are incapable in our flesh to live a righteous life. We're incapable of attaining heaven. We are rather heading for a path of destruction. And even for those who have it all together in life, the destruction inevitably comes because God says, if you sow to the flesh, you will reap corruption. It is coming. It may be delayed. It may seem to be delayed, but it is coming when we sow to the flesh. But we can instead be part of God's program. God in his sovereign power as he accomplishes will wants to include us, wants to involve us. But we must come to that point where we see, as we sung today, I need thee every hour. I need thee, Lord. I need your wisdom. I need your help. It is not debasing to admit that we are needy people. Because God created us with that intention, that we would depend on him. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, where Paul learned this lesson. I just heard recently some, a comment on a phrase that's kind of been popular amongst Christians for years, that says only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. And I appreciate this commentator that he pointed out that he would prefer that it would be phrased this way, only, only one life will soon be passed, only what Christ does, does through me will last. Because that's the reality of it. It's not how much we can do for God, it's what he can do through us. If we are simply willing vessels, yielded vessels, if we're simply willing to follow him. And how much happier a home Jacob could have had if this whole party would have simply gone to their knees and said, God, what would you have? God, give us wisdom. God, direct these decisions that are being made. And how much, uh, how much more of a stable and happy output it would have had 
Instead, Jacob wouldn't be facing someday, or at least probably would not have been facing someday, the thought of the loss of Joseph as his hated brother sold him off into slavery, facing the loss of a son because of the, the hatred and animosity that existed in that home. Here in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul learned this lesson of humility. And verse 7, he says, Unless I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelation, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. And so Paul recognized the fact that God had given him an abundance of revelation. That means he had revealed to him much of the truth we have in the Bible. It came to, is through the Apostle Paul. God revealed it to him so that he might teach others, so that they, it might be written down and we might have it today. And so it, and Paul recognized that and said, so God was going to keep him humble. And he gave him this thorn in the flesh, whatever it is. There's a lot of debate about what it might be. God doesn't tell us, so I'm not going to go there. Where the Bible is silent, I'm going to remain silent in that issue. But he gave him this, this, this buffeting, this thing that was going to humble him. And Paul says, concerning these things, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. So he prayed three times. We recognize sometimes God says no, by the way. I think we mentioned that a while back. And he said to me, instead, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I would rather boast in my infirmities, my weaknesses, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, reproaches, and needs, and persecutions, and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. And you can see really what God was trying to accomplish with Paul was to keep him dependent. Because he didn't want Paul to get so arrogant that he would operate in his own wisdom, in his own direction, in his own strength. And so God wanted to teach him that his grace is sufficient because my strength is made perfect in weakness. And it's not that God wants to weaken us. God just wants us to recognize that we are weak and incapable. That's, that's the message here. And God in his grace supplies. That's the glorious thing here. And that's the way life was intended to live. It was Adam and Eve who rebelled against God when they decided to go independent from God, go solo and say, you know what, God, I don't, I'm not going to believe you. I'm going to eat that forbidden fruit. I'm going to take my chance because I think life's going to be better. We took the line of Satan that you're going to be as gods. You can run your own life. Do your own thing. If you, if you do not listen to him. And for how many thousands of years have we suffered the consequence of that whole decision? As through one man, sin entered the world. And death is, is by sin, because of sin. And the destruction and the havoc and the calamity. And as we look around us in a world that is getting increasingly dark, as we see the, the, the atrocities that mankind bring upon one another, it is just mind-boggling and baffling. And how could, it, how could people do such things? And it's because of sin. And the further we get from God, the darker it gets and the worse it is going to get unless we turn to the Lord. Because God made us to live in relationship with him. That's what he, God meant for us to enjoy his love, to enjoy his help and guidance in our lives, to hold his hand in our lives. You know, it's interesting in the development of children, you know, how when they're young, they want to be comforted in your arms as they're a toddler, and they like to hold your hand when they walk down the lot. And then pretty soon it comes to the point when you drop them off somewhere that they don't want you to drop them off a block away so they can't be seen with their parents. You know, and then 
somehow back in their adult years, in many cases, they come back and will give you a public hug in front of people and won't be so embarrassed and so on. One of my children said, told me one time that when I, when he got to be 25 or so that his dad got a lot smarter. And they come back. And that's what God wants us to do. Come back to see into a relationship with him because with him, we really need him. He does have that wisdom and strength to offer. And, and, and God says here, Paul recognized that my strength is made perfect in weakness. When I recognize my need for a, a, a walk with God, a relationship with God, then I'm strong. And there's no greater strength than, than spiritual strength, moral strength, strength of character that God develops in our life to do what is right. And that's what's lacking in our nation today is there's no real moral courage today. There's strength in the masses, the popular opinion, but people don't have a foundation to stand on and find moral courage to stand for what is actually right and true because truth is from God. Second Corinthians 4, verse 7, in referring to our gospel witness, it says, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels. I love that verse. It's a treasure. But it's in earthen vessels, clay pots, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. And that's really the lesson behind the story in Genesis chapter 29, is that we find people here who, would, who made decisions, took action outside of a consideration of God, his word, his will, his wisdom, and the calamity that resulted. God was able to accomplish his will in spite of that, but God was teaching us a lesson that how much more better it would be to recognize we're earthen vessels, to walk with him, depend on him, look to him, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. And that's what it means to keep Christ central in our lives as we depend upon him. And so it's a, it's a privilege to find a God who is sovereign, who is going to accomplish his will. Because he is God sovereign, God almighty. But along the way, somehow he includes us, even in our weaknesses and failures and calamities. He wants to involve us and include us. And what a blessed privilege that is when we humble ourselves and say, oh God, okay God, here am I. Use me. Because there's no greater reward in the world than to be used of God to make a difference in people's lives. And that's what God has called us to. I like these verses. <coughs> Maybe we'll close with these this morning. In the end of Jude, in which Jude is talking about contending for the faith, where he says, now to him, who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, you truly are the Almighty. You are an omnipotent God. You are our creator, God. And God, you are a very patient God. How long-suffering you are with us, Father. Thank you for your great grace in which you've extended to us forgiveness through the cross. Thank you that the Lord Jesus himself took our punishment on the cross so that we could be forgiven and restored to a right relationship as your children. To walk in, in love with you and dependent faith in you that we might in turn find strength in our weakness, that we might find stability in our calamity, that we might find <coughs> wisdom in our, in our lack of understanding as we walk with you. And Father, as we <coughs> consider the results of Bad decisions made in Genesis 29 and 30. Father, may we recognize that we need to bring every decision before you to look to you for wisdom, but then, Father, to rest assured that as you guide us, the fruit will be well, good, 
life will be good and this consequence will bring stability to our lives. And so, Father, teach us the things you'd have us to learn in all together this morning, we pray. And may you be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen.